Good evening. Here is a story that I think I've never told publicly before. Eleven years ago, in the spring of 1985, at a time when the Book Arts Press and Rare Book School were still based at Columbia University in New York City, Mrs. Marianne Malkin invited me for lunch at a restaurant in the American Museum of Natural History on West 79th Street. She had, she said, something she wanted to ask my advice about. Now, even in 1985, Marianne Malkin, or Mam, as everybody always refers to her as, and I went way back. How far back, I can't really remember, though I do remember a time when I did not know her. The 1974 Rare Books and Manuscripts section pre-conference was held in Charlottesville, Virginia. And I have a vivid memory of sharing a van from the airport with Clive Driver, now there's a name from the past, <laughs> I hope, and with Saul and Marianne Malkin sharing a van from the airport to the conference motel, which was somewhere on Route 29 North, in a place where I'm sure uh, the old-timers here all know, but I've never been able to relate my 1974 memories of that conference with any physical aspect of the Charlottesville I know today. It was a long time ago. I remember the trip in from the airport because I remember being too shy to introduce myself to the Malkins as we all scrunched in the back of a terrible van waiting to get down to the hotel. I did, however, meet Marianne shortly thereafter, I think through the good offices of Jean Peters, then the librarian of the R. R. Bunker Company, and also Saul Malkin. And shortly thereafter, Marianne Malkin did something that furthered my own professional career considerably. In 1976, she was the chair of the RBMS Nominating Committee, and she and her committee nominated me as chair-elect of the section, an election which I went on to win, probably because of her skill in choosing the person whom I was running against. <laughs> the section was much less active than it was later to become, but I was pretty new to the profession in the mid-1970s, and it was uh, Marianne's imaginative imagination, uh, it, her imaginative nomination, and later a piece she wrote about me in A.B. Bookman's Weekly that really set me on my own way. Most of you here know A.B. Bookman's Weekly as a worthy weekly magazine carrying bookseller ads of books wanted and for sale. The Malkins sold the magazine in the early 1970s. It continues and prospers to this day, but I think most persons would agree that its salad days were during the Malkins' tenure as editor and publishers. A.B. Bookman's Weekly made its debut in 1948 as The Antiquarian Bookman. It was published by the R.R. Bowker Company as a spin-off of the so-called back half of Publishers Weekly and included dealers' lists of books wanted and a few single copies of books for sale. The front matter of Antiquarian Bookman consisted of trade news of interest to dealers, collectors, and librarians, and included a column written by Jacob Blank, providing news, musings, and gossip about the trade. The journal quickly became a prime source for timely news, book reviews, and coverage of trade and library conventions. It was also the country's leading venue 
for reviews of knitting and needlepoint books reflecting an interest of one of the editors. It attracted a large subscription list of dealers, both those especially concerned with selling used books and those primarily engaged in the sale of new books, but who ran OP search services for their customers. Malkin purchased the magazine from Bowker in 1953. Its name was changed to A.B. Bookman's Weekly in 1967. Saul and Marianne Malkin continued to edit the Weekly until 1972, when they sold it to its present editor and publisher. In 1973, the Malkins were jointly awarded the Clarence Day Award of the American Library Association. This award is annually made to a librarian or other individual for outstanding work in encouraging the love of books and reading. The Malkins were the first non-librarians to receive this honor. In all, Saul Malkin spent more than half a century in the book trade, taking time off only for World War II. For the past 50-odd years, he wrote in the mid-1970s, we have been unashamedly in love with bookselling and booksellers. For the past 50-odd years, we have deliberately tried to enter, participate, and make a reasonable living in every part of the book world. As clerk and manager, bookseller and wholesaler, publisher and printer, designer, production and director, paper and printing salesman, book importer and exporter, runner and scout, catalog and mail order specialist, translator, editor, author, bookkeeper, collector, appraiser, auctioneer. Saul Malkin's goal was always to get the right book to the right party at the right time at the right price. He was, as Marianne O'Brien Malkin has said, a one-man publicity campaign in the world of books. He died in 1986, having lived long enough to be able to read the first Malkin lecture, which was delivered by Michael Winship at Columbia University in December of 1985. Which brings us back to that lunch Marianne and I were having at the restaurant of the American Museum of Natural History at the beginning of 1985. Saul Malkin was already in failing health, and Mam was looking for ideas on some way to memorialize his many years of service to the world of antiquarian books. One idea she told me about at that lunch that she was thinking of was an annual funded lecture to be held, she thought, in New Jersey. Then is now the home of the AB printing offices. This seemed like a pretty good idea to me, but I had an alternative to propose. Michael Winship gave the first Malkin lecture in December 1985. Since then, Malkin lectures have included Robert M Malkin lecturers, have included Robert Darnton, Lucian Goldschmidt, Bernard Rosenthal, Anthony Rhoda, Justin Schiller, Roger Stoddard, Tom Tansel, and Marjorie Wynn. Since moving to Virginia, the Malkin lecturers have tended to be members of the antiquarian book trade. The 1996 Malkin lecture in bibliography, to be delivered by Kenneth W. Rendell, continues in this tradition. Ken Rendell is, and for many years has been, the world's largest and most important dealer in manuscripts and his presence in the book world is, to put it mildly, by no means inconsiderable. His role of exposing the Hitler diaries as fakes enhanced what was already a worldwide reputation. He writes and lectures frequently on manuscripts and rare books. He has been a strong supporter of the Book Arts Press and its cottage industries for many years. 
and it is a particular pleasure for me to welcome him tonight, speaking on the changing world of manuscripts and rare books, or nostalgia isn't what it used to be. So. To get everything plugged in here. This is so that if, if this goes over well and I'm tired in the future, I can do this with lip syncing and uh, I can keep up with the whole idea of it. Thank you, Terry. I was, I was thinking the other day in, in terms of making some initial comments here about the, the setting and all being very appropriate for this. Uh, I was thinking, when, I, when did I meet Terry? And then I almost came to the conclusion, I can't think of when I didn't know Terry. Uh, and this is really a very appropriate place to talk about the, the changes that are going on because I've thought for a long time that Terry really is in the forefront of it. Um, and Mary Ann and Saul were very, very much in the forefront when I first started in this business in the late 1950s. I mean, they were the people who really kept the rare book trade from kind of drifting off into such a high level um, as defined by, the, by a certain group uh, and kept it in, involved with the people who actually read books and really liked books and, and what books really represented, uh, not just uh, prestigious type of collecting. The, uh, the other thing that's actually very appropriate here, I've been talked to, uh, to Karen quite a bit about the collecting that's going on in the future here, is that you have two major factors at, at UVA that in a sense represent very different anchor points in the whole history and evolution of, of rare book collecting and manuscripts. You've got the Barrett collection, and I'll speak more about Walla Barrett as I, as I go through this, uh, and your new library, you have the Albert Small collection, uh, and Albert's almost in the middle of a, of a whole change that's taking place that I'll discuss with people. Uh, Barrett being the almost professional type of collector who really built a special collections privately. Uh, Albert being the, the much more modern kind of collector who built high spots, uh, but had a tremendous affinity for his university and really has cared about uh, what comes here. The subject that, that we're talking about tonight is one that I've talked about about every 10 years that seems to come up. You know, what's going on with the rare book world? What's happening? The, the changes? Where is it going? Uh, whenever you look back on the rare book world, everybody's always been complaining about the lack of the, the change from the good old days. Uh, one quote that I saw written in a book in 1910, um, if we examine the catalogs of sales, we shall see they are enumerated a multitude of items that would now readily bring from 20 to to, from 20 to 50 or more times as much as they did. The reason for this advance in values is not difficult to understand. In those days, the number of collectors was extremely small. That was written in 1845, and they were talking about the first quarter of the 19th century. Simon Gratz in 1920 wrote, it is true, as you have been told, that the prices of certain autographs have risen so greatly within the last 15 or 20 years that wealthy men alone can purchase them. But another one, a favorite one, the so-called high prices of 20, of 10, of five years ago were always regarded by some as absurd, while others went confidently ahead, bought at the market, and today have collections that it would be impossible to duplicate at any price. Such a collection is that of Pierpont Morgan. So I just wanted to put it in perspective that people have always been complaining about the lack of material, the way the prices are changing. Uh, I wrote in 1968 uh, in a catalog introduction uh, just kind of reviewing all of this, and, and my final line was, it is sometimes difficult to realize, but today will be the good old days in a few years. But of course, 1968 now are the good old days for everybody. But what my talk is about it tonight, it, it is not about lamenting 
uh, the passing of the good old days, if indeed they really were the good old days, because there were lots of negatives in the, quote, good old days. Uh, what I really want to talk about are the various factors in the rare book field and in the manuscript field uh, that are causing the changes, how it's changing, uh, and what actions I think are really necessary for people to stay involved in the field uh, to whatever degree they want to be involved. This is not a judgmental uh, type of thing. This field is changing very fast. Uh, some people might not want to be uh, part of how it changes and may prefer to live in the good old days of right now. Uh, and other people who want to continue working in the field and staying up with what's going on, uh, they have to really get on the horse or or the horse is moving out from under them because it's going to change and it, and it will just continue heading that way. Uh, I once wrote for, at an ABAA function of I was parodying the uh, AA serenity prayer that rare book people had to accept the things they could not change. They needed the courage to change the ones that they could and the wisdom to know the difference. And I think that really is an important part of all of this. Let me give you a little bit of my own perspective in this field because it obviously affects the opinions that I have. Um, I began my business in 1959. Uh, my attitude was that I was collecting at the time. I could not afford to keep collecting everything that I saw. And it was much more interesting to be the temporary owner of things, uh, enjoy them for a little while, and being a dealer was the ultimate, that I could afford to keep some things and, uh, th and that I would have fun with some things and then that have to move on. The only advantage that I had when I started out was that I was one of the few people who was a dealer and a collector. And one of the, my great advantages is that I've never lost that. I, I have big collections now. As Terry has said, some, one of my collections is bigger than the, than the event itself. Uh, and I literally am getting pushed out of my office and my house with just too, ma too many things. In the 1960s, uh, starting out as a new dealer with, in Boston uh, with no social credentials, i.e. not being a Yankee, um, it, was, it was pretty difficult. But... Uh, what I did find was that the, the collector approach really carried a lot of weight. And, and in the 1960s, uh, the, I basically was building the business by appealing to real collectors. In the 1970s, I was very involved in the appraisal field uh, for virtually every institution uh, and expanded a lot in Europe, dealing with European institutions because nobody was catering to European institutions. It was, it was almost laughable. Uh, people in England... Uh, would cater to Harvard and Yale and, and the major American institutions. They never paid attention to Edinburgh, Glasgow, the University College London, places like this, which turned out to be very good clients. The 1980s it became a time of major changes. Institutional budgets basically ended, which was a big part of our business. Uh, it was also the decade of going public. Uh, this is the only time tonight I will mention Hitler. Um, 1983, because Dan said was this about Hitler and how could, it, how could the name not come up? But 1983 was, was a big turning point in, in that period of time. You had Mussolini's diaries turn up, which were fake. Those were. Then you had the Hitler diaries. Then you had the Mormon uh, documents and murders that came up. And all of a sudden, there was a lot of publicity for this field that had always been pretty quiet. Uh, and it was really a sense of going public uh, at that point. Um, there was also a big shift in collecting at that point because the research-type material was really dwindling, uh, and there was much more of a sense that artifact value was going to be a factor in, in, in the future. Uh, and I clearly saw a shift away from what we had been doing. Uh, I opened a gallery in New York, uh, which was an upstairs gallery on 57th Street, 
Uh, and while the content material is still and continues to be what drives the business, um, the New York Gallery, I thought, was a hedge against the future because I didn't know where we, everything was going. Uh, by 1990, just six years ago, everything was accelerating very rapidly. Uh, archives were rarely found uh, that, you, that were worth selling or that were worth buying. Um, the institutions had less money than ever before. The content end of the business was fine, um, but a major problem was there were not new collectors coming along. And in, in that line, we got involved much, much more in the public end of the business. With a, We now have a gallery in Madison Avenue, New York, street-level gallery. Uh, we had one for five years in Beverly Hills. Uh, we've been involved in lots of PR, um, advertising. Uh, we are on QXR in New York, the classical radio station. Uh, and the ads I was telling Terry at lunch today are do very well. QXR loves our ads because we quote from letters. Uh, they'll start off, uh, I went to the opera last night to see the damnation of Faust, and Berlioz has really screwed it up this time, and this is just not really up to that. Giacomo Puccini wrote that letter in 1845, and the, they get phenomenal publicity because we're really trying to reach out and involve people. Uh, we also began exp expanding into the book business at that time, um, doing... Uh, selling annotated books, signed books, uh, but also beginning to build complete libraries, not selling individual books, but if someone wanted to build a significant library, that was something that interested us. The, um, the four major factors involved in the subject tonight are the material available, the collectors, the, the source of the material, the dealers and the auctions, and the institutions. And the material, pretty much I'll discuss in relation to each of these areas um, as we go along. Clearly, the greatest change that's happened since I've been in business uh, is the, are the change in the private collectors. It's not just the change in the material. In the 1960s, the majority of business, not necessarily transactions, but most of the concentration from every dealer's standpoint uh, was in dealing with, I, with what I always have referred to as the professional collector. Uh, and there were two types of professional collectors. There was the businessman who made his money and the academic who inherited his money. But they both collected very much like a special collections department at a university library would do. Uh, the premier one is the one you have here, Waller Barrett. Waller Barrett um, had an office in New York to just process manuscripts that he bought. Uh, invoices to Waller Barrett, you, you couldn't quote anything in those days, there were no photocopiers, and you had to type descriptions, and with dealing with enormous numbers of $10 letters, because that's what things cost in those days, you couldn't possibly do descriptions. So the way it worked with collectors like, there was no one else like Barrett, but these special collection type of collectors, um, was to simply send things on approval. And invoices to Barrett could be 60, 70, 80 pages. These are quarto invoices. They would have four and five, six hundred, eight hundred pieces on a, on a monthly invoice, five dollars, ten dollars, seven dollars and a half, and so on. He had a staff that processed the material. Uh, it, it was a business type of, of thing. Um, presumably he looked everything over, but I, I can't imagine he looked at every ten dollar letter. I, I think his staff did. But it was really run with a, he knew where it was going, he knew what the, where the direction of the collection was going, he knew physically where the collection was going, and it was like deal, dealing with a business. And he collected the circle. He collected everything about a subject, uh, which is something that's changed dramatically. And there are other people like Waller Barrett. De Courcy Fales, who was a real character in New York, a banker, who always, and he had a great deal of money, but he always referred to himself as a poor man's Waller Barrett. Uh, and I mean, some poor man. He was the, I can't remember the bank, but it was on Park Avenue, and it was very impressive. And 
and he had an enormous yacht, and I, I thought, of course, he failed, had a lot of money. Um, his collection's now at NYU. And there were a lot of people like De Corsi Fails around. Now, he did not have a big staff. He wasn't processing large numbers of things the way Barrett was. But still, he, he had a purpose. He knew the institution, where it was going to go. It fit in with their collecting pattern. Um, that was the normal way that you did business in the 60s and into the 70s. Uh, you also had the, the other type, the second type, which generally operated on inherited money, uh, and these were people who had very good educations and who had offices in university libraries. For example, Bob Taylor being a, a major one at Princeton, uh, Jim Osborne at Yale, Dick Gimbel at Yale. Uh, these th did exactly the same thing, except they really were in the university setting. They had a staff. Uh, the institution knew it was going to get the collection, and it was Jim Osborne's whims, in a sense, as to what he collected, but he collected very seriously. and, and uh, he collected things that no one has ever collected since then, like letters of Samuel Parr and all kinds of minor English people that interested him. Um, but it was still this very broad-based uh, idea of knowing where the collection was going and not just being big names. The other types that you, that you had, um, what I call the private collectors of these, the, the earlier periods, were really the more individual. There was no grand scheme. There was no grand sense of where it was going. Um, the outstanding collector of the 50s and 60s, uh, I'm not sure when he died, but it must have been into the, probably about 72 when his collection was sold in 76, was Phil Sang. And Phil Sang the, built the greatest collection of American historical documents ever built. Uh, in the end, as, we, as everyone found out, he never intended it to go to any institution. Uh, Sang collected PhDs. Uh, from institutions that thought they might be getting his collection. And he, ha and he actually had all these displayed in his office, just the same way Malcolm Forbes did. It was pretty awful. Uh, with caps and gowns from places you never heard of, uh, stuck up on the walls and all these things. And the great shock for everybody when Phil Sang died was they got nothing. And uh, everything was sold by Elsie. But S Sang continued the, the tradition of... of uh, buying great content, in, but not buying more minor material. He didn't, he didn't focus on a subject and buy, every, buy archives of all the players. He, in a sense, bought all high spots, uh, very important content, but he also collected technical, what I call technical material, which I must say I do have a prejudice against, which you will, will become aware of, uh, very much like issue points, minor binding points, and things like that. Uh, you know, the, if the date is 1776, it's worth a hundred times what the letter is worth if it isn't. Uh, he had sets of uh, what I consider obscure people who signed obscure documents like the Albany Convention. This was an old way of collecting by lists. But he had broken away from that. He had gotten into very, very important content. Today, it, it's quite different. Uh, there are collectors, or one anyhow, like Barrett. It, with a major exception. This is Dave Karpolis in Santa Barbara. And Karpolis has built an incredible collection over the last 30 years on political history worldwide. He has millions of pieces. I mean, you'd think it could never be done, but he built his own library. He is not affiliated with any place. Numerous librarians have asked me if they could meet him. I say, and I say it's, it's not, it's hopeless. You know, Dave Karpolis is not going to be involved with any institution. He doesn't need you. He's got plenty of money to run his own show. He's got his own librarians, and he does, and that's what he's done. And what I think has enormous merit, he, he's got uh, the main libraries in Montecito, up behind Santa Barbara, and I read a wonderful story in the New York Times a couple of months ago 
uh, from a reporter who had been to the Coppolis Manuscript Museum, which is something entirely new in downtown Santa Barbara, which has shows to change every four weeks. And this is typically Coppolis. Get people involved, get them in. Um, but generally speaking, there aren't collectors like this anymore. The material isn't there. The mentality is really different. Um, people are much more exhibition-oriented. Uh, they're very high-spot-oriented. Uh, it's a complete change away from the 1960s. The other private libraries that have been built, uh, the Forbes Library in New York City, which is actually a serious library. And, um, I mean, when Malcolm Forbes was alive, it wasn't as serious. But now they, they have loan programs, they have curators, they, you know, if you have exhibitions and you need things they have, it's a full-scale program to loan stuff out every place. Uh, it can be used for research. There's the Copley Library in La Jolla, California, interestingly another person in the publishing business. Mrs. Copley is, is pretty old at this point and not very involved. Uh, in what's going on, but that's well-funded and it's it's its own stand, you know, s separate institution with conservation and everything. Uh, she's doing it her way, and uh, she collects what she wants to collect, not what anybody else wants her to collect. Uh, and the other big collection being built is Gilda Lehrman, and God knows where that's going or what's happening with that. Um, but it, largely, the private collecting today reflects um, society of today. You know, it's it, it's sound bites. Um, it's everything that's wrong with society in, in a way. Uh, the one thing that's very good about this whole field is despite all popular perceptions, there are no investors in this field. Uh, I've never had anybody, I mean, people ask about what's it worth, what's it going to be worth, because they're putting a lot of money into something, but ne with, never with any intention of selling it. And nobody does. Uh, it's one of the problems. I mean, you almost wish there was more of a turnover. People die with this stuff. I was buying some things privately from somebody last week in a different field, and he was talking about, well, this one was a better investment. I said, I'm going to die with this. I don't care. But I like it. I, w I want to own it. I want to have it. I have no interest in selling it. Uh, that's generally the attitude in the manuscript field and basically in the book field. There is, in books, there's been investment, but it, it's not a real factor. Uh, another factor, though, just in terms of the material changing, I, I consider people that I knew uh, in the 1960s who had specialist collections, and I thought of one in Valley Forge, Pennsylvania, John Reed. John Reed's collection had, let's say, 500 pieces in it, all involved with the American Revolution in Valley Forge. When John Reed sold his collection, it was probably went to 20 different people. The numbers start to come really down. John Reed just had these in filing cabinets in his, in his home, in his ranch-style home. He did not have a lot of money. Uh, when those people sell, they all sell to five different people. It, it, the numbers aren't going up. Now it's a collection is 10 pieces. Uh, there just aren't enough of these high-spot pieces uh, for people, except people like Gilda Lehrman, to um, build up large numbers. The other factor is, is that uh, lower-priced material is now too expensive for dealers to handle. And you can actually do very well collecting relatively low-priced material, but you have to go visit the dealers. Nobody can afford to quote it to you. Nobody can afford to handle it. You, come, you can come to us. We have drawers of relatively inexpensive stuff. Uh, but we can't put it in a catalog. We can't send you photocopies because that just will boost the cost. You know, wages and so on are, become a real factor. The second factor um, as to what's been going on, I'm going to talk about the future as the last part of this, the dealers and the, and the auctions. Uh, that has changed very dramatically as well. Uh, 35 years ago, you had half, half a dozen specialist manuscript dealers, uh, numerous rare book dealers in all the major cities. 
uh, with high visibility locations. You had Goodspeeds in Boston, Warren Howell in San Francisco, Zeitlin in LA, uh, everybody in New York, and it, it was high visibility. They had storefronts. Uh, most of these people handled, handled manuscripts as a sideline, which was great for me, uh, because nobody quoted things because you didn't have photocopiers. Most of these people only concentrated on the real mainline institutions, which was defined as Harvard, Yale, Princeton. Um, the real game was to find all the other institutions that had money, and there were plenty of them out there. Uh, and I did very well just buying from these dealers who, like Drake and people who were still around, uh, and had literally drawers full of manuscript material, and they really didn't know who Walla Barrett was, uh, nor did they care if, he, if Walla Barrett wanted to come and see him, fine. But they certainly weren't going to offer anything. Well, that gave me a great opportunity, fortunately. Uh, auctions in those days uh, were really wholesale sources for dealers. Uh, they're nothing like what they are today. Um, they catered to the dealers. I went to the first Sotheby's sale in London that I ever went to was the sale of Gilbert and Sullivan manuscripts, and I couldn't believe how cheap some things were going, and I kept bidding and getting nothing. And then a dealer, who, an English dealer I knew, said, if you want to buy anything, just tell me. And so I did, and he got them. But afterwards, I saw, I don't understand this, I, uh, to the auctioneer. And he said, oh, he said, we really don't bother with bids from people we don't know. <laughs> and, I mean, this was an, un I mean, the, the system really worked as far as they were concerned. They had a real closed market. My favorite thing from those days was the South of the Auction. This is absolutely true. A book auction, and one lot said, a box of contents. <laughs> if you couldn't go and you couldn't look, you weren't in it. And I mean, there's nothing like what goes on today. Book fairs were no factor in the 1960s. I used to organize the New York Book Fair. Uh, it used to be a real struggle to get 20 people. We tried to get the number down to 15. Could we put on a book fair with 15 people? Today, the biggest problem that the ABAA has, the, the Booksellers Association, uh, is that the California book fairs are now up to 300 and 350 people. Um, we, we use walkie-talkies at these fairs because I can't keep up with my staff. I would like to use rollerblades at the next San Francisco show. I think it would be very appropriate because just walking around these fairs is, a, is ridiculous. So the, all of that has changed. But now when you look at the auctions today, it, it's, of course, a whole different thing. The auctions are marketers. Um, they dominate in the volume, except for a couple of dealers. The auctions do much more volume, dollar volume, than, than dealers do. Uh, they provide a lot of service in their way as they perceive it. But the thing is, is that from the standpoint of your customer today, it is perceived as, as great service. There's no threshold anxiety. You don't have to worry that you're going to go in and somebody's going to assume you have all this knowledge, that nobody at an auction house is going to make you feel stupid because basically they're in business to do business with people who don't know anything. And they have, they have estimates, they have full catalog descriptions. Uh, you don't have the problems of walking into a shop and somebody says, it's 25. I've always wanted to take out a 20 and a 10, you know, and hand it to them under those circumstances. Because you don't know it's 2,500, 25,000. There's no label. There's no, you know, there's no description. There's all this presumption in the mystique. In the auction houses, Sotheby's is the one that's done, and not Christie's really. But they've taken out the, the, the mystique. And now anybody can go, as we all saw in the Jackie Kennedy uh, sales, which really was, I, I thought, the sale too far. Um, it, it, I felt very strongly about that, and I was asked by Newsweek. Newsweek called and said, um, well, there are two factors that determine value. And I said, yes, and they said, well, the intrinsic value and the associational value. How do you proportion that to the Jackie Kennedy sale? 
And I said, well, it's 5% intrinsic and 10% associational. And this guy said, well, that doesn't make any sense. And I said, well, I didn't agree that there were three factors. I said, because you missed the number one factor in the Jackie Kennedy sale, circus value. This is a circus, and it's 85% circus value. Well, I was very pleased. I got a bigger play in Newsweek than the president of Sotheby's did. <laughs> and my, my point was, if you want to buy the cigar box for $500,000, great. That's wonderful. It's your money. Do whatever you want to do with it. If you want to send your kids through college someday, when you sell this, you better buy bonds now, because it, they're not going to go to college on, on the basis of that. There's another factor with the auctions. Uh, is the idea that the, the, it's from a dealer's standpoint, it's called the greater fool theory, or from an, I mean, dealers in anything, in investments and so on. But it really does work. The people assume that there's an underbidder, and the underbidder knew something. Uh, in 1976, the logbook of the Enola Gay was sold, and it was at the end of the, one of the Sang sales, and uh, I had run downstairs to get my bill. I came upstairs to meet Forbes to go out to dinner. And on the stairway, somebody said, can you believe it? The Enola Gay logbook sold for $85,000. And I walked in, and this was not a Forbes kind of thing. And I said to Malcolm, I said, Malcolm, who the hell would pay that? What idiot bought this? And he said, I did, thank you. <laughs> and so I obviously did not pursue that. Five or six <laughs> years later, I'm having lunch with a guy named Harry Spiro, who's now a big buyer in New York. And uh, I, I remember it so well because it was such a perfect uh, example of how this works. Uh, I asked Harry how he got involved in, in collecting because he was a paintings collector. So well, one day he said I was at a sale at Sotheby's and I, I was viewing the painting sale and I saw all this action going on and, and I, the catalog was hanging on the wall. It was a manuscript sale. And he said, and I just picked the catalog off the wall. He said, the next lot was the Enola Gay. And he said, hell, I didn't know what it was worth. It was estimated at $20,000, he said. But I saw Malcolm Forbes bidding on it. And I figured he knew what he was doing. Well, I brought it up just for the hell of it with Forbes. And I said, Malcolm, how did you ever come up with 85000 He said, well, I could only be wrong by one bid because the underbidder must have known what he was doing. <laughs> and clearly, you know, these guys left reality back in the dust. I mean, of course, the fact is the Enola Gay is worth vastly more than that today. And Forbes made a lot more money, and it really didn't make any difference, and he was smart to have bought it. But there's that sense that you go to an auction and that the other person knows what's going on while you don't, so you're only going to be wrong by one, which is not frequently the case. The, the other major thing here, though, that, that's changed um, is with the, all the rare bookshops moving out of the cities, uh, and most people now go, have gone into, the, into working out of private residences in the suburbs, they have only a few ways of doing business. They can send out catalogs, but you need a mailing list. You need people to send it to. So they're the converted uh, people you can find, the people who belong to the Grolier Club, people who attend things. Uh, you can send out quotes, but you need to know the people to send them out to, and that's very easy today, obviously, with faxes and, and photocopies, and book fairs. Book fairs are a big deal for, for book dealers these days. Uh, most people are specialists. Very few people do everything. Uh, an enormous number of booksellers these days are not full-time. Uh, you know, when I was thinking about that, at one point you couldn't get in the ABAA unless you were a full-time bookseller. That was a big issue. People got barred from membership. And today it must be the overwhelming number of them are not full-time people. Uh, but the big problem that's coming out of all of this is that there aren't new collectors. Not, you're not bringing new people in. Without storefronts, uh, without popular advertising, uh, advertising in bookseller publications is great to show off to the other people in the bookselling field. Uh, there's a thing called Autograph Collector Magazine, and I think it's a big macho publication. Because these people spend all this money on color ads. For who? I mean, who's going to see this stuff? I mean, I see it, their colleagues see it, the collectors they already know see it. 
they should spend money advertising in publications where uh, you might get new people interested. Uh, there's very little public relations done with the popular press. Uh, most booksellers don't have a clue what people really find sexy. What is going to make it onto the Today Show? What's going to be in the New York Times? What's going to be interesting? They thought that book fairs were the answer, but book fairs are really headed down uh, in terms of importance. They're wholesale markets um, for a lot of complex reasons. Uh, and basically, I think the book trade, rare books in general, is in a relatively weak state these days. Moving on to institutions, um, and I'm going to talk about the future of these areas afterwards. Uh, I think that in, in many respects, institutional collectors have changed less than, than either of these other areas, less than the collectors, less than the dealers, uh, and that's not necessarily good, or it isn't good in, in a lot of specific cases. 1960s was the, the decade of, of enormous money uh, in response to Sputnik, um, and then the op enormous offshoot of the Vietnam War where all the graduate students uh, everybody who could possibly go to graduate school, stayed in graduate school, meant that special collections needed collections for people to work on. Uh, so a lot of money was put into it. It was simply good business. How many, I mean, this wasn't a joke. People would, uh, in special collections, would analyze collections, but how many master's papers can you get out of this? Are there any PhDs in it? Uh, I mean, you could almost do a formula. Well, we pay 7000 per PhD uh, out of these archives and so on. Um, in a sense, it was a paradise from a dealer's standpoint because anything was an archive. Uh, 25 letters that had anything in common became an archive. Anything that could go in their catalog is an archive. Uh, institutions uh, that had never been acknowledged by the major dealers suddenly had a lot of money. I mean, one major one that was a real player in the 1960s, 19s, early 70s was Syracuse University. They were very significant. They got a factory in downtown Syracuse to process collections. Collections were moved around on forklift trucks. Uh, it was a big processing center in downtown Syracuse, and it was to deal with all the graduate material that was needed. Uh, Texas was buying uh, heavily in, in during those years. So also a lot of other places, uh, like the Hayes Library in Fremont, Ohio, had a reasonable amount of money to buy all the things related to Rutherford B. Hayes' administration, plus other things. They'd gotten Benson Lossing's papers and things like that. Uh, the Filson Club in Louisville, Kentucky, was a relatively major, I mean, major that had five or $10,000 a year, but that added up with a lot of places doing that kind of thing. Uh, another thing that existed in those days uh, that seems to hardly exist anymore are lifetime relationships with donors. Uh, people stayed at institutions and were identified with an institution for basically their whole career. Uh, things have changed pretty drastically in the last 37 years. Uh, the funds are gone, essentially. Um, the material has almost also declined, material for institutions, at about the same rate, it seems. Like, it hasn't really mattered that the institutions don't have any money from our standpoint. We don't have anything to sell uh, that institutions want, generally speaking. So it's almost been in, a, uh, uh, in an equal balance. Uh, I think Terry has, has done the best job uh, possible of, of preserving standards in the field and producing people... Uh, from his programs that, that have a business-like functioning attitude uh, about being in, in the field of, of rare books and manuscripts, that you have to function. You can't just go and read your books. We had, we had a new employee start on Monday. Um, I interviewed him last week, and I told the person managing the project, I said, I mean, what I am afraid of is this guy is so interested in these subjects. A, I don't want him cataloging in any area that he's interested in. Uh, he loves American history, put him on English history and world history. I said, no, don't do that. Let's put him in literature. 
I mean, because I don't know that he likes literature at all. I don't want him to be fascinated because these are not expensive books and we have to move along. We have to get our catalog done. Uh, and I can't build a client while this guy sits and is, is fascinated with the books. Uh, I thought it was appalling when I was told one time by people who ran the Harris Stamp Company uh, that they had on their form, employment form, um, do you have an interest in philately or the history of postage stamps? And if you checked off yes, you were automatically disqualified for a job. They didn't want you to look at the stuff. You had to process the stuff. These were catalogers. These were people doing orders and so on. If you looked at the stuff in the envelope, you weren't going to be efficient. Well, we're not that bad, but I do have to you know, be careful that 15 and $20 books don't get 30 minutes of time because somebody's really interested in, in going far with it. But one of the real negatives that, that I saw happen personally in an awful lot of cases after the 60s and 70s was that people who had made deals with institutions uh, saw everything get reversed as people left institutions. And it happened to me. I had built the, a big collection of White Mountains literature, guidebooks, everything, literature about the White Mountains. And the librarian of the Boston Public Library told me, he was visiting me, and they thought this was terrific. And, and would I give the collection to the Boston Public? And they would continue it. They would buy it buy-in it and all that. Well, five years later, he leaves. A new woman comes in, has zero interest whatsoever in New England stuff. You couldn't even find my books at BPL now. Uh, one of the worst ones I ever saw happened at Syracuse. John Mayfield gave his collection of English literature, uh, and the deal was that he would have a lifetime job as a curator of his own collection. Well, that lasted about three or four years, uh, and the librarian decided it was time for him to move on. And I remember saying, you know, but I mean, I, I, I know the deal you've got. It's not in writing. He said, I need the space. That's it. Mayfield Library is absorbed into Syracuse Library. doesn't exist anymore. That's the way it went. And I think a lot of this stuff has hurt libraries, that, that there isn't this continuing thing. I don't know anything about the uh, Arnold Schoenberg case that's been going on. And it's a fascinating case with USC. Uh, I mean, I can imagine that the, the heirs of Schoenberg are a real problem. Um, but the other side of it is USC made a deal. And uh, it's, a, it's a messy situation. It seems to me that one of the um, main problems with a lot of the people working in, in institutional libraries has been that it's been too much of a business. Uh, I mean, I've seen this when I used to go around to libraries for appraisals, and one of the first things I'd always say to a librarian is, why did you get this collection? Why are you giving it space? Why do you devote staff time to catalog? Tell me why you want this. I mean, I don't know, I don't know enough about your local history or whatever this particular thing is. Tell me why this is exciting. And frankly, they didn't have a clue. Uh, I used to really find that amazing, that, that, that it, was, it was almost a processing kind of position for an awful lot of people. And I think that's a lot of the reason that librarians can't relate to a lot of the collectors today, because the collectors are really excited today. They're, they're a whole new breed of people. Uh, they're, they're more emotional and less intellectual, uh, which turns off a lot of the, the people from the, from the institutional side of it. Uh, there are the people in the institutional field uh, who I think have done a terrific job at relating to the public, relating to their market, if you will, uh, to their donors, collectors, and so on. People like Rise Camp and, and Charlie Purse at, at Morgan with the exhibitions that are done there. Uh, Vicki Steele at USC, uh, who is really excellent. Uh, she did an exhibition for my collection last year. Um, and what I thought was fascinating, I designed the exhibition, which was called World War II, The Nightmare Years, uh, was that she invited groups that had nothing to do with USC to use the exhibition rooms for meetings. And these are people who never were in the USC library. They had no connection to USC. And it really went over extremely well. And she was very pleased that all these people who got introduced to USC and made USC relevant to the community, including Steven Spielberg, 
who had just done Schindler's List, uh, and brought in a lot of people like that because it had this. My my show had a, a, a the the basic theme was there were no heroes. There were, I mean, in a sense, there were heroes, but there were no winners. That everybody was badly damaged by the experience of World War II. Whether you won the Medal of Honor or if, if you survived, you still were very badly damaged. Uh, Tom Staley at Texas, Howard Gottlieb is kind of the ultimate at BU, is Boston University is kind of an ultimate uh, person at reaching out to the public and getting uh, publicity. Uh, a lot of the stuff he collects is, who knows, but, but certainly he's picked up a lot of stuff that, you know, will work out well, and, and he's been effective. He, you know, he starts out with a university with no budget, no alumni, and has built really significant collections, uh, including Martin Luther King. Um, a few years ago, I guess it was three years ago at Harvard, there was a symposium on, on the future of rare books and manuscripts, and I only was there for the first uh, day that I heard, but I was really pretty shocked at the things I heard that day from an institutional standpoint. I heard one of the early speakers say that uh, people really had to understand how bad it was these days. On their board of trustees, they actually had two entrepreneurs, and the whole room went, oh. I mean, well, then... An hour later, I mean, this guy was really blown out of the water because somebody else said they had a commodity speculator on their board of trustees. And I remember leaning over to Bill Joyce from Princeton who was sitting next to me. And I said, I can't believe this. The greatest collector in the world for the last six years is a commodity speculator. He buys everything in original language. He reads every language. Uh, he went to Harvard, went to the school. He got a PhD, he, went, he was a professor at Berkeley, and decided he actually wanted to collect things, and he wanted to make some money, and, and he wanted to pursue and just not teach about all these things. And he's the most successful commodity speculator in the world today. He spends enormous money collecting manuscripts and real books and reads everything, and he wouldn't give a library a dime. He gives a lot of money to universities, but he feels totally cut off. He feels that they're all snobby, they would never have anything to do with him. Uh, he just doesn't identify in any way. He feels the exhibitions are irrelevant. Uh, and I asked him about this before when I was talking to Terry about doing this. And he said I was absolutely accurate. Uh, I thought that most of the people that I heard that they really missed the, the whole point of this thing. Um, turning to the future as to where everything's going, uh, to a fair degree, I think it's whatever you want to make out of it. I think that the, from, a, from a material standpoint, material to collect, the real archival material is basically gone. That really seems to be the case that uh, places like Texas, just in, in one area, but other places were like Texas in doing what they were doing, aggressively going after material in all fields, essentially did buy it all. Literary things, the more the individual pieces, individual manuscripts, I think are going to continue to come out as the prices get higher. Uh, and that's always been the case. Everybody thought the world was coming to an end when Phil Sang's collection went on the market. This is going to flood everything. Uh, you, you can't absorb all of this. What it did was it brought people like Malcolm Forbes out, who had never been a big collector because there never were big things for him to buy and exciting things. And then once things started to bring over $100,000, institutions started to sell. Now things bring over a million dollars and more institutions sell who can't justify holding on to these things. So I think that the market from that side of it uh, will, will, do, will be fine. I mean, there will be plenty of material in that sense. The future, as far as collectors are concerned, um, I mean, I think it's a reality that people are less educated today, and, and, and it's going to go downhill. There are fewer people getting liberal arts degrees, uh, and that's just the fact of life. Um, there's much more emphasis on major personalities. It's a hero type of culture. 
uh, and emphasis on major works only, not not the peripheral things, nothing that puts uh, works in context. People aren't interested in it being in context. They don't have time to read the books that put the other book in context. They don't have the time or the interest to see how somebody got to a point of view. They just want to bottom line it, get to the point of view. Terry and I were at Monticello today, and it was interesting because this, this guide was trying to engage everybody in a discussion of Thomas Jefferson and his slave attitude and whether he fathered the children with whatever her name was, um, which I, I, I actually thought was very irrelevant then. And, and Terry brought up, he said, well, maybe it, it's the media that's driving everything which the guy somewhat brushed off. I mean, I, I totally it's the media that's driving everything. With, the, with these kind of uh, questions into people's personalities, did Dwight Eisenhower have a sexual affair with Kay Summersby? Clearly he had an emotional affair with her. Uh, you know, was Eleanor Roosevelt gay? On and on and on. I mean, this, this is the People magazine culture that, that's going on. And, you know, that's just a large segment of po the population has this kind of... Um, basis. I do think that there's going to be, and I know it for a fact from my own standpoint, that there's much, much less interest in the technical criteria. Uh, and this is my prejudice. And dealers attract the kinds of people who have similar attitudes. A uh, longtime competitor of mine, Paul Richards, uh, and I had totally different clientele. We were both started in 1959. And I always emphasize content. Paul always emphasized what I call technical rarities. A Grover Cleveland check really excited Paul because it's rare. Well, that to me I always call the Rose Bowl parade syndrome. Because it took 56,000 people 400 years to put all these flowers on the float, it still isn't pretty. You know, it just doesn't matter that it took all this effort to do it. Who cares? Uh, to me, that's postage stamp collecting. Well, it really does matter. You know, the, the lineup of the perforations on a postage stamp and how much glue is left, that isn't a joke. I mean, I find that ludicrous that people have criteria like that. But anyhow, uh, what I'm finding is that when we're building libraries with people, uh, my own prejudice, which is not necessary to get a first edition and first issue, is to get the most influential edition within the author's lifetime, the book that made the difference. Uh, always get it in an original binding, uh, but you don't have to get a rare binding or a rare variation. I think that, that doesn't particularly interest me. Uh, there are a lot of criteria that are important. Dust jackets are important, but they wait, so what if it has a small tear in it, so it costs $5,000 less? Buy the one with the small tear. That's what the advice I give people. But that's just, that's my own collecting attitude. So I'm, I will readily admit that I have a real prejudice that way. People today want to see things on display. They want, you, people don't, can't buy enough things, so they, they want it to be there. Uh, we've done all kinds of things with bindings and boxes and, and all kinds of elaborate ways of displaying things so people can have them and use them and see them, frame them, see it. Don't put it in a drawer. Uh, for God's sakes, don't go put it in storage someplace. Um, we actually had, it, it regularly give out advice on buying safes and vaults and insulated filing cabinets. Have the things at home. Don't leave in the bank. I mean, what, there's no fun to that. Um, and the collector of today is really making their own decisions. That is an enormous thing that we're really seeing. We're building two very big libraries right now. Um, I mean, enormous libraries, that, the kind that you will read about uh, when they're really public. Uh, and I am amazed at the booksellers who tell me what I should tell these people to do. Well, first of all, these are people who you read about in the newspaper every day. They run industries. They're inventors, and, or they're in the arts. I mean, they, they create things all the time. And I give them information. They decide what they want to do. They decide what's important to them. This whole attitude of you have to follow a certain thing. You have to follow this. You have to concentrate. 
People don't just aren't doing it. We, we had a client, a major client buying rare books, whose wife was very interested in children's books. And she was always confused, and every time I go to the house to deal with him, she'd talk to me, well, she didn't know where she was going, and should she do this? And I used to say, Alan, do whatever the hell you want to do. It's your collection. Collect what you want. Collect what turns you on. Make it fun. They had tons of money. She could buy anything she wanted. You don't have to buy first editions. You don't have to buy special things. Buy what you like. Well, I got her lined up with Justin Schiller, uh, and between my telling her to do what she wants to do, there aren't lists. Don't collect by lists. Don't just, you know, think, I mean, there's all this nonsense. You have to concentrate. She's a really good collector now, and she's having a wonderful time at it. She really enjoys it, because she's being herself. She buys the art that she likes. She buys the books that she likes, and that's what it's all about. But there's too much of an attitude among dealers that, oh, you have to follow all the standard criteria. Uh, we have another one, a library we're doing in Paris, and uh, this guy knows exactly what he wants. And it's French literature and French history. He knows precisely the kinds of things he wants. He wants scholarly editions in one area, first editions in other areas. Some areas in, in the 18th century wants really nice bindings. Uh, he knows exactly what he wants. And all the time dealers are saying to us, well, you've got to convince him to do this and that. We wouldn't dream of it. This guy is a real scholar. He knows he's an artist. He knows exactly what he wants. We, we're, we pay attention to what they want. One of the biggest factors these days is, is the attitude of excitement with collectors that I never saw 20 years ago, 25 years ago. Phil Sang sent you, actually it was a joke, he didn't send you a check, he sent you a series of checks because uh, he always paid on time, uh, over a period of time in installments. Um, but these days we get people who are terrifically excited uh, I had a client who was ma the major financier in America uh, who bought a Mozart manuscript for his wife last year for Christmas. And he told me that, I mean, th this man lives on an incredible scale. And he said, of all the things, I mean, they have five floors of French furniture on Park Avenue in New York. They have houses all over the world. He said his wife sat down and cried when she read the Mozart manuscript. That's the greatest satisfaction I can get, you know, to know that somebody's appreciating it like that. And we get that all the time now. Uh, with, with these new people who, well, we, do, we call them readers. They read about the subject, and what we offer them is the opportunity to have the original books and manuscripts that relate to their subject. They're not compulsive collectors. They're not checking off lists. And the dealers, where I left off with the dealers basically operating from their residences with catalogs and, and, and going to book fairs, this just isn't, doesn't work. The new people are not coming in. Um, I have been and continue to be the only manuscript person who reaches out trying to bring new people in uh, with locations, advertising, doing interviews, and so on. But a lot of book dealers have been doing this, and they're the ones who are successful. The Heritage in L.A., Jim Cummins in New York, uh, the Baumans in Philadelphia and in New York. Uh, London is really changing. Simon Finch is on New Bond Street. Shapiro's bought a building right behind Sotheby's. People are understanding you need to, you need to introduce new people to it. Um, I've gotten a tremendous insight with these collections we're doing right now because I see one whole group of dealers who don't cater to the, the collectors at all. Um, we bought a very expensive set of, of plate books uh, last month. And it was very interesting because I called various dealers to ask, you know, what they thought of this set, and I wanted advice. And, and once well, all the birds have to be colored. And I said, well, how common is that? And they said, well, the last one was uh, not 30, uh, so, I said, 30 years ago? I said, is the one in private ownership? He didn't think so. I said, you know, my collector would actually like to have this collection within his lifetime. You know, he's 50. And if we can't put this together in five years, ten years, this guy's going to lose interest. I, I, we're not, he's not a theoretical collector. He actually wants to acquire the books. So we're going to go, you know, with one where he everything isn't colored. 
you know, we're going to go with the best set that we can find, and they're not, not on the horizon, and nobody knows of a set that's going to come up, so we're going to buy the best set that we can get. Um, but I've been amazed at the lack of service, the, the dealers who won't quote things, they won't ship. Uh, I've been really quite amazed at, at the attitude. As far as the institutions are concerned, I think the major thing uh, that, that's happening here is the sense of that it has to happen or institutions die. Uh, is involving their audience, however you want to define your audience, uh, which I would define from a practical standpoint as potential donors, collectors who may give you collections, in your administration uh, to be relevant, relevant to what's going on. Uh, shows that people actually care about, shows people want to see. Done in a way, uh, in a more, much more modern museum style. I mean, museum design has changed radically in terms of involving people. Uh, the idea of you even displaying letters or books, display them up here. Don't put them down in a case. Don't keep them remote from people. Bring them up. Bring other artifacts that relate to the subject. Uh, to bring people in uh, with, with themes that, that people can relate to. Uh, I think this is going to be incredibly important. Uh, approaching donors and, and collectors in a marketing sense. Uh, I'm a trustee of a, a museum being built in New Orleans. Um, and we get, we get into the subject of how raising money for various areas, and one wealthy person had turned them down, somebody that I, Steve Forbes, to be precise, had turned them down, just wasn't interested, and I wrote to him and said, would you build a library? No problem. They asked him for money for, in a general sense, but, he, but he, the subject matter interested him. He put up all the money for the library. Great, because the library interests him, and he would see a specific thing, and his name's not going on it, but he'd see a specific reason to give the money. It made sense to him that way. I must say that there is a limit to how far I will go with things. While we do contribute stuff to Wheel of Fortune, we get lots of publicity out of that. At the D-Day Museum, they wanted to have, um, a guy wanted to fund a Disney ride kind of thing where you could get in a landing craft and supposedly you would experience landing uh, on Normandy. The boat would bounce around. You could actually get wet. You might even get nauseous. And I, th I thought it was a great idea, provided we killed 30% of all visitors. <laughs> because only with a 30% chance of getting killed could anybody really have any sense of what D-Day was like. And otherwise, it really was disrespectful to the people who really went through the whole thing. The, I think that the biggest thing, you know, what I'm saying here in, in, in finishing this is, is that the, an interest in the donors, an interest in what really this field is all about. Uh, it's about human nature. It's about creativity. It's about... Truth and beauty, in a sense, and the, you know the truth of what what's written in the books, the beauty of how it's presented, the bindings, um, how it's put together. Um, I think that a lot of institutional people need to be less judgmental uh, about what other people are doing or what it takes to get people in. Uh, but I think whatever changes people need to make these days, it it's really insignificant compared uh, to the tremendous pleasure you get out of spending your life in doing something like this. Thank you. <laughs>